Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service from February 20th, 2022 from Pastor Brett Cottrell. I invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Ruth. We are in chapter 2. Last week, last couple of weeks we have we began the story seeing the tragedy that uh, fell in Naomi's family and in Ruth, and now they have journeyed back to Bethlehem, hoping and believing that God is going to do something that maybe they don't even anticipate. So as we come to our passage this morning, we left off last week at the end of chapter one, and one thing we didn't really have a chance to look at is the very last phrase of chapter 1. I think it's as we begin this morning in chapter 2, this last phrase of chapter 1 is going to be important for us. It says in verse 22 of chapter 1, the very end, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. First part of chapter 2, now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now I want to pause there for a moment because these two verses really travel together. Now, if you remember what's happened to Naomi, he, her husband Elimelech led them away from Bethlehem, their home that they should have stayed in, quite frankly, and they, he led them to Moab, probably the one place they shouldn't have gone. And as they, as they went to Moab and spent time there, not only did Elimelech die, but Naomi and Elimelech, their two sons died. And even after several years of marriage, they produced no, no grandchildren, and so Naomi finds herself in a strange land, a place that's filled with people that do not know or worship God, and she finds herself there without her husband and without her two sons. She has her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. She hears that food and the famine has, the famine's left, the food has returned to Bethlehem, so she recognizes that that's the hand of God. She decides to go back to Bethlehem. She encourages Ruth and Naomi, or I'm sorry, Ruth and Orpah to, to stay back. One, because she feels they will be more cared for among their own people, that they will be able to find husbands and they'll have a, a future there. But Ruth makes this profound declaration in the middle of chapter 1 where she tells, tells Naomi, your people will be my people, your God, my God. It's a profound statement. She declares her love for Naomi, that she will not leave her, that she will take care of her. Now, not only did Naomi think it would be better for Ruth and Orpah to stay, but she also thought it would be it for her. Because she knew that going back to Bethlehem, she was going to be relying upon the charity and the goodwill of others. And having another mouth to feed in Ruth wasn't going to make things easier. And on top of that, Ruth, as we were reminded throughout this book, is an outsider. She's going to make Naomi's job harder, Naomi believes. And so for Naomi to go back to Bethlehem and take Ruth means that she has an additional mouth to feed and that because Ruth is an outsider, someone who really probably won't be accepted, she thinks, in Bethlehem, it's going to make the job all the more difficult. So Naomi thinks it's better for her if she goes back to Bethlehem and that Ruth doesn't. But nonetheless, Ruth is there. And yet... Even in the desperation of these circumstances, we have a glimmer of hope. The, the narrator of our story wants us to know that all is not lost, and he gives us this little glimpse. They get there right when the harvest is coming. And in other words, 
the food is coming in. And on top of that, he gives us a second little hint. Y'all may remember from your literature classes in high school that certain authors like to give you certain hints or foreshadowing of something that's going to be on the way. And he gives us these two hints. Harvest is on the way. Oh, and by the way, they have a rich relative. That's always nice, isn't it? Don't, don't you like it when you have a rich relative? Especially if they like you. Maybe you are the rich relative. I don't know. But that's the hint. That's what God is doing here. And there's this little glimmer of hope in the midst of Naomi's bitterness, in the midst of her tragedy. Verse 2, chapter 1. Ruth the Moabitess, just by the way, a reminder, she's not from Bethlehem, again, said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. She said to her, go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned to the field after the reapers. She happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She's, from, or she's the young Moabite woman. Again, a reminder, she's from Moab. Who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in, other, in another field. Furthermore, do not go from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge." Then she said, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Heavenly Father, as we read this word this morning, may we see in the provision that you provide Ruth. May we see your character. May we see your grace. May we see your redemption. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me kind of set the stage for you what's happening. So as we come to the time of barley harvest and, and we see that Ruth is talking about going out and gleaning, here is the normal procedure of that time and place. The idea is that uh, the men primarily would be going out and reaping. That is, they would, be, they would take sharp instruments, scythes and things like this, and they would cut down the grain. And as they cut the grain down and piled it up, then there was a group of women that would come by and they would bind it together in sheaves. So the guys are cutting it down and piling it up and the ladies are coming behind them and, and binding it together in, 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 in units and sheaves for it to be picked up and, and then uh, you know, used for food. And in that context, there would be people like Ruth who would come in and follow up 
first the reapers and then the, the ladies who were binding things up in sheaves. And as you work, the idea was sometimes grains fall to the ground or sometimes something is dropped or sometimes something is just forgotten. And what she was going to do along with other widows and orphans uh, is to come along after that and find whatever grain got trampled on the ground, find what got picked or what got dropped and pick that up. And that was what would be hers. So as you can imagine, that's not a lot. But that's the idea, to essentially go behind the workers in the field and pick up the scraps that got dropped and left and to use that to feed her and Naomi. Now, what will also be happening is that uh, the, the whole clan, all these relatives, all these people in Bethlehem, and, and remember, Bethlehem is probably not much more than a village of a few hundred at this point in time in history, five, six hundred probably tops. And, and uh, Boaz, along with others who owned property, they had their workers going out into these fields doing these things. Now, there are no fences, by the way. There's no signs that say Boaz's field, all right? It's just kind of out there. And there might be a couple of landmarks here and there. You know what I'm talking about. You know, you know when you give, uh, there's the way you give directions in town. And there's the way you give directions out in the country, Right? Y'all know the difference? And in, in, in town, you go three blocks and take a right at the left or such and such street, and you go two more blocks and take a left, and you get to your destination. What happens in the country? Yeah, you, you go down to that old oak tree that used to be there and take a left. You, and you, you go a little ways, and then you know old Johnson's barn. Take a right there. If you're not from there, what does that mean to you? Do you know where the oak tree used to be? <laughs> no, this is this is the way. This is the what. And, and, and this time, and this is this is the, how the fields were marked. Whose field is this? I don't know. We just know that's Boaz's field. And maybe there would be a pile of rocks. Oh, that's where Boaz is. Boaz's field starts at the pile of rocks and goes to that other pile of rocks over there, and then someone else's field starts. And maybe there's a pile of rocks beyond that. And that's where Boaz's field picks back up. In other words, as Ruth goes out into this thing, she just knows the fields are over there. There's no signs. There's no mark. Just, just go over there. And remember, as the Scripture has told us repeatedly here, where is she from? Moab. You may have noticed that that was like repeated like three or four times. One of the repeating themes here is that Ruth's not from around here. And so does she know whose field belongs to whose? No. She just goes out there. And she starts picking up what's left on the side of the road. By the way, the other thing that's happened is this, that's going on, if, uh, is that God's people have been told in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and we're going to look at those in just a few moments, that in order to provide for the orphan and the widow and even the foreigner, it says, the alien sometimes is what it uses, it says, that you are, he says, when you drop things on the ground through the process of harvesting, don't pick it up, just leave it there so that they can come behind you and... Pick up, the, pick up the leftovers. They were also told, the people of Israel were, to not harvest all the way to the outer edges of their field, to leave a little bit of leftover stalks at the ends or on the edges so that people could come in, the, the poor and so forth, to get a little food that way. So you were not supposed to go all the way to the outside, just almost. So this is what's happening. Luke, Ruth is in this situation. She's looking for leftovers, and she just finds a field, and she asks for permission to go to work, and there she is. So that is, 
That's what's happening. Now, in verse 3, there's something very interesting here. It says, She departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And it says, She happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. This is actually a Hebrew idiom. You all know what a Hebrew idiom, you know what an idiom is or a phrase is. And it literally has this idea of, it, well, it literally has the idea is she lucked upon luckily. <laughs> or by chance, she chanced upon. In other words, I, I, I phrased this morning's message title, as luck would have it. And so the idea is this, that our, our narrator is having a little fun with us this morning. And he tells us she's going to go out and look for some food. She's going to go work for some food. And as luck would have it, she just happens by chance, by luck, to come to the one field that is owned by Boaz, that rich relative. Now, as we're looking at this as believers, as we're looking at this as the people of, as the people of Israel would have, and we see the phrase, she got luckily lucked upon this field. Do we really think that she just got fortunate? The answer, by the way, here is no. <laughs> What's happening here? What's happening is this. The narrator is giving us um, one of those wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, she just got lucky and happened to get across a field by the relative that's got lots of money. In other words, yeah, from the world's perspective, she was lucky. But we know what? That what's really happening is that God is at work. It's just it's one of those little ironic statements where he, it's one of those little knowing things where the narrator is having a little fun with us here. The author is having a little fun. and says, yeah, by a stroke of luck, she came onto Boaz's field. By the way, Proverbs 16.33 says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, what? What appears to be lucky is actually, in fact, the providence in the hand of God. One of the things that Ruth and Naomi are about to find out is how often the work of God happens in ways that we don't visibly see at first, that look one way on the outside, but in fact are something else. She just happened to show up at Boaz's field. She got, happened to just get fortunate. No signs, just the Lord we know is in fact directing her. It's almost like the tale of the story is, by the way, it's not really lucky. <laughs> so this, this verse, is, despite what it says, it's actually screaming to us, guess who's in charge here? We know that in chapter 1, Naomi said that God has had his hand against me. She says it twice, that the Lord is out to get her. She's bitter. She's angry. She feels that all that's happened to her, the death of her husband, the death of her sons, the, the fact there's no grandkids, the fact now that she's got a daughter-in-law tagging along with her. Ruth is, or Naomi's looking at her life and saying, all these are signs that God hates me. Look at all that's happened to me. And yet, the end of chapter 1, the very beginning of chapter 2, there's a little hint. Oh, by the way, there's some hope out there. And then verse 3 is the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Oh, she thinks this is what's happening. She thinks that God's out to get her. She thinks that God hates her. She thinks there's no hope. She thinks there's no point to life. She's just bitter. But we know, guess what? Someone's doing something. Someone's moving the circumstances. Someone's 
directing Ruth to a place that she doesn't know what's going on. Secretly, behind the scenes, where no one can see, God is at work. And what we're going to see this morning is this. That first of all, Naomi, Naomi is going to be provided for. Her redemption is going to take place through the provision of God in a number of different ways. And first of all is this. Part of what's happening for Naomi and Ruth is this. God's providing for them through His Word. Now, Brent, what do you mean by that? Well, I mentioned that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy are these, are these commands to God's people to provide for the widows and the orphans and the, and the, and the foreigners, the aliens. I want to actually take you to these things. Um, in, in, uh, in Leviticus chapter 19, and uh, you may have been reading through Leviticus recently. Maybe not. Uh, in Leviticus chapter 19, there's, there's, there's good things there. I'm not going to say it's, it's the most uh, action-packed portion of Scripture, but there's, there's good things here. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 God tells this, he says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. That's the stuff that falls out. Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. Leviticus 23 says the exact same thing. And he, and he gives a reason there, verse 10 of, of Leviticus 19. He says, leave this for the stranger, for I am the Lord your God. That's the reason given. Leviticus 23 says the same thing. Deuteronomy chapter 24, um, a little longer passage that has the same thing going on. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17. You shall not pervert the justice due to an alien, that's a foreigner, or an, or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in, in pledge. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. The rest of the chapter goes on to the same thing. In other words, God had set aside in the commands to Israel as they went about their annual daily work. He had provided for those who were in need. And specifically, he says, the widow, the orphan, or the foreigner, or the alien, or the, or the one from another land. He says, you are, Israel, supposed to specifically set aside things or not do things or do this or do that to make sure that they're taken care of. So well before Naomi's ever born, well before Israel is a nation in the sense of being established in the promised land, God had, through His commands and through His word, to his people, made sure that people like Naomi and Ruth were to be provided for. So well before the bits of Ruth, God had put things in place to make sure that Naomi and Ruth would in fact be provided for. It was part of his covenant with the people of Israel. He told Israel, listen, you used to be slaves. You used to be outsiders. You used to have to wander around the desert to live. And I'm telling you, because you know what it's like to be outsiders, you know what it's like to be in need, you make sure you provide for the needs of others. By the way, I think the application of that for us today should be fairly obvious. We are to be a people who care for others. For you and I are a people who, as we read a while ago in Ephesians chapter 5 when we, when we uh, prayed a while ago, who were once in darkness 
We were a people who once were separated from God. We were a people once lost in our sins. We were a people once who had turned their backs on God. And yet God, through His great mercy and His great grace, has brought us from, His, from that world of darkness into His light. We should be a people compassionate, working towards, making sure we are ministering towards those who are now in darkness so that they may also come into light because we know what it is to, to, to be those people. We should be that. We should be those who care for others. Simply by doing the things that God's commanded us to do, we will be instruments of God's grace towards others. So God has provided for Ruth and Naomi simply for, because of His covenant, because of His word. Before they were ever even born. He also provides for, for Naomi through this outsider, Ruth. Now we've already talked about this a little bit last week, but how many times do we have to see this? Verse 22, chapter 1, Ruth the Moabitess. 2, Ruth the Moabitess from Moab. I mean, over and over and over again, the storyteller is letting us know she's not from there. She doesn't belong. In fact, we know that the Moabites in particular were those who were really told not to, they weren't, Israelites were told not to have anything to do with them because of their worship of, of a false god named Kamas and because of how they had rejected Israel. Ruth is an outsider. Every time she is referred to, she's referred to as an outsider. Let me ask you a question. What is it that makes someone an outsider? I've, I've lived in five different states in our country. I've lived in Arkansas, in Texas, in Kansas, and in Indiana, and in Georgia. Now, I remember when I, when I some of the first times I ever went up north, up to Indiana. And I, you know, it's you know, we're in Arkansas. Indiana is Yankee land. Cross that Mason-Dixon line, and I never really thought about myself having a particular Southern accent. But I remember one of the first times I was up in Indiana. I'd, I was actually coming through Chicago. I was flying. I was flying into Chicago and coming into Indiana from there. And and uh, and I'm on the flight coming into Chicago. I'm talking to someone. They said, "You're not from around here, are you?" I don't think they said like that, actually, but you're not from here, are you? I said, well, how would you know? Because you don't talk like somebody from Chicago. And sometimes it's an accent that might make us feel like we're an outsider. Maybe it is a culture. Maybe it's a language. Maybe it's ethnicity. Maybe it's just habits. I remember when, when we first moved, when I was 13 years old, we moved from Springdale, uh, Arkansas, to, to Fort Worth, Texas. And... I remember um, being, my dad's a University of Arkansas graduate. I grew up on the Razorbacks. And for those of you who remember back that far, not all of you do, but back in the old Southwest Conference days when all of Arkansas's rivals were in Texas. They played Texas and Texas A&M and TCU and all those schools. And all of a sudden now, I'm wearing red. One of the first things I remember doing, uh, our youth pastor, when we first moved to Texas in 1982, our youth pastor was a Baylor graduate. In fact, not only is he a Baylor graduate, he played college football for Baylor. He was a big dude, played offensive line. And that year, Arkansas was playing Baylor in football in Waco. Coming in, I remember all this because it was bad. Um, Arkansas was undefeated, ranked number three in the country, I think is what it was. Baylor was nothing. I think they'd won one, one or two games all year. And he said, do you guys want tickets? And we went, absolutely 
And there we were, a couple of dots of razorback red in a sea of green right next to the student section. And yes, it happened. Baylor somehow maintains, I don't know how it happened, some miraculous work of God. And they beat Arkansas that day. And guess what happens when you're wearing red and everyone else is wearing green and you lose? You are, at that point, an outsider. And all the lingo and all the words and all the names that go with it. (laughs) There are lots of things that can make us feel like we're on the outside looking in. Money, language, ethnicity, habits, looks. And yet, do you know that we as believers, we are told by Scripture, we are told by God Himself that when it comes to this world, what are you and I as believers? We're outsiders. We do not belong to this world. And yet most of us, if we're honest, spend a lot of our time trying to blend in. We want to look like, act like, talk like. We want to be like. We value the same things that they do. I can't imagine in my life going down to Waco, Texas and putting on a green bear shirt. It's kind of funny. A few years later when I was getting ready to graduate from high school, I actually got, I had a recruiter come from Baylor and, uh, you know, one of those things and they, they give you, we want, man, we want you to come to Baylor. And for a few moments I thought about it. They, 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 they made a good case. It's a, it's, a, it's a pretty campus. I've been on the campus. I'm, I'm not trying to pick on Baylor too much. And they gave me all this stuff. And I'm, I'm actually beginning to think about it. Okay. And they say, here's, here's the line, or here, here's the phone number to call us for more information. It was 1-800-BE-A-BEAR or something like that. And I just went, oh, I can't do that. And yet, so many times, as silly as an example as that is, so many times we look at the world, we look at the values of the world, we look at how the world operates, we look at what the world wants to do, and we say, I want to be like that. And God has told us, no, 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 you're not of this world. By the way, when we come together as believers on a Sunday morning, we are a bunch of outsiders coming in to be part of a people, a nation that is unlike the world. Now, by the way, being separate from the world, being an outsider in the world does not mean we don't love the world and don't engage the world. Don't, mis- don't, don't misunderstand that. Ruth is an outsider, and yet what we find is that God's going to use this outsider to rescue and redeem those who are on the inside. Those that would have otherwise have been rejected are going to be the very one, the very one that God uses to not only redeem Naomi, but to not to spoil the end of the story, to be King David's great-grandma. So God is going to redeem and rescue Naomi, not just through His Word from the past, not through the law, not just through the covenant, but even through an outsider. And he's also going to use the, the Boaz in his fields. Now understand this. She doesn't know it's Boaz, but she, she finds Boaz's fields and, and 
what's Boaz doing when she shows up to, to work in his fields? He allows her, or at least his, his servants, his, 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 uh, his, his foreman allows Ruth to do exactly what she's asked to do. In other words, Boaz is living a life in Bethlehem as this landowner in obedience to the covenant that God had given. All Boaz is doing at the beginning of this chapter is just doing the things that God said to do. He's not doing anything unusual. He's not doing anything particularly heroic from our point of view. He's just being who God said to be on an everyday basis. And it will be through Boaz's normal, everyday obedience that God will use to redeem Naomi and, and Ruth. Sometimes we think that we have to go beyond our, we have to go beyond the pale to do what God wants us to do. Well, I, I got to go to Africa. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe it's just that God's placed you in a job or God's placed you in a neighborhood or God's placed you here or God's placed you there, wherever he's placed you. And he's put you in that spot just so that you will be obedient to what he's already said. And being obedient, just being who God's called you to be in your normal, everyday job, in your normal, everyday family, in your normal, everyday neighborhood, will be what God uses to redeem somebody and do a miraculous work in their lives. The truth is, for most of us, and most of our time, just by simply having a right relationship with God, just doing the very small things each and every day, God will use that. God uses those things. To simply be with us and redeem us. So we see God, God's grace and God's redemption in Naomi just through what he'd already commanded, through Boaz's obedience to that, and simply through, and through an outsider in, in Ruth. God's character, his, his purposes are seen through all this. It's his word, his commands to be uh, uh, to be compassionate and pro providing for the outsider, providing for the, a the, the, the widow, providing for the orphan. The fact that God put this in His law, in His covenant with Israel, that tells us something about who God is, doesn't it? Of course it does. Remember, all that's happening from Genesis to Revelation is reflecting who God is. So that God thought this idea of protecting the widow, protecting the orphan, protecting, we don't really use the word alien, and we don't even use the word uh, uh, foreigner in the sense that they do. Modern day, protecting the, the immigrant. That's the word we would use today. God says, in protecting these, because you are, he says, have been outsiders. We are outsiders to the world. Because you have experienced what it means to be over here, and I brought you over here. Because you have done these things, because I have done these things, you be this way. So all these things are reflecting God's character. Now, one more thing I mentioned a while ago. God's character is also seen in the almost invisible way he goes about doing these things. Um, some of you may remember the 1982 movie called Gandhi, on the life of Gandhi. There is a a scene in the middle of that movie, Gandhi uh, is actually walking down the road with a with a, with a, a, a Christian pastor who had showed, in the movie had showed up to help him out. And as they're walking down the street in this movie, they encounter uh, some guys who uh, don't like uh, Gandhi because he's Indian and they're 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 British and that's just the way the movie was. And so anyway, these guys are wanting to do some harm. There's there's there's, there's a threat of violence through some circumstances that had nothing to do with Gandhi and the, the other character there in the movie, these guys who are about to 
beat the daylights out of them, <laughs> or, sudden, or something made to have to leave and not finish the violence they intended. And the Christian guy says, man, that was lucky. And Gandhi says, I thought you were a man of God. Now, what's the point there? The point is, Gandhi's going, don't you believe that God orchestrated this? We were obedient to what God said to do, and that God honored that and protected us? Why would you attribute the work of God to luck? But that's, again, that's what's happening in Ruth chapter 2. The narrator tells us, oh yeah, she chanced upon, she chanced to chance upon. It is, are you really going to attribute what God is doing to just luck? Or are we going to recognize that God is doing something? How does God rescue us? How does God redeem us? How does God work in our lives? Well, we know just you know, a, a, a few years before this that God had rescued, rescued his people out of Egypt in what couldn't be described in anything other than a miraculous way. Those plagues and the Red Sea. I mean, that's... When we think of the move of God, we think of stuff like that. Pillars of fire, parting of oceans. Wow, that's, that's what we're looking for. But you know what? It won't be long after this uh, well, it'll be a few centuries after this that we'll see the story of Esther. And God just works behind the scenes, doesn't part any seas, doesn't uh, make any walls crumble. Sometimes He does, but often, in fact, the majority of time that God works in history, He does so in ways that are almost not visible at first. He works behind the scenes. He works through individuals. He works through circumstances. He puts all these things together, and you go, "Why? How did all that happen?" How did, how did all these things conspire to do this? And they didn't just randomly conspire to do that. God put them together. There's no such thing as fate or luck or some outside force. There is God doing what he does. And those moments, like Naomi and Ruth are in, we should not mistake God's invisible hand for an absent one. Don't mistake God's ordinary work for no work at all. One, one pastor wrote this, maybe, maybe in those times it's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Maybe that's part of what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So the question for Ruth and Naomi might have been, do you trust God? Do you believe He's at work that He hasn't left His throne even when you don't see it? A few couple months ago, um, I'm hiking on Mount Nebo. My dad came down from northwest Arkansas. We were hiking the summit trail around the top of Mount Nebo, and we um, kind of got done a little bit early, and so we were kind of taking a shortcut back to my truck. Got to my truck, went to my pockets, and realized uh, my truck key is not in my pocket. Again, top of Mount Nebo. Late Friday morning, Angela's at work. Um, we don't have a second key anyway. <laughs> and we've just been hiking. And all of a sudden, there are no keys in my pocket. And the truck is locked because I locked my truck. So a number of things run through your mind at that point in time. And so I said, well, we had, we had been at the visitor center there. And we were parked, if, if you don't know Mount Nebo much, we were parked at Sunrise Point on the east side. And so... There's a parking lot right there, that view. And so I thought, well, I will walk back 
to the visitor center because we've been to the visitor center and I'll walk back there and see if maybe I dropped it in the visitor center. So on the way back, and I'm at that point, I'm, I'm hoofing it pretty fast trying to get back to the visitor center on foot. And as, as I get, as I'm walking alongside the road, I, I thought, I remember, you know, sometimes I have your hands in your pockets, I remember playing with my keys in my pocket at one point as we're walking over here. So I'm, I'm actually, I find myself at this point, I'm, I'm actually walking across the entrance where that road that goes down to Dardanelle that becomes into Mount Nebo, and there's the pool there and all that stuff, if you know all that area. I'm walking right through there at that point. I'm going, I know I was playing with my keys at one point. So I thought, I'm going to change sides of the road. This, we were walking, I'm going to walk over there, and I'm just going to, as we walk, pay attention to where I'm. And sure enough, not five minutes later, right in front of the pool area, I look down, and there is my truck key on the ground. Now, at this point, I've got a couple different options. One, I could pick it up and go, man, I'm glad I thought of that. Well, yeah, I thought of that. But I also went, Lord, thank you, because, man. <laughs> and I, the, Lord, the Lord said, move over here and find, you know, that's the providence of God. Now, I don't want to make too much of those things, but the, the truth is God works in these little things all the time that we don't often recognize. Be thankful for what he has done. God works through these things. God's character, his purposes, his grace, his compassion are seen in Naomi's life as God works through the ordinary, as he works through the covenant that God made with Israel, his, through his laws, as he works through his word, as he works through the obedience of Boaz, as he works through an outsider like Ruth, as he works in unseen ways to make sure that Ruth gets to the right field owned by the right guy at just the right time. God expresses his love for us this way. By the way, when we get to Boaz, we don't have time to spend a whole lot more time here. Boaz does, though, end up going over kind of above and beyond. We'll spend more time on this next week. But I want you to see here all the things that Boaz does. If we look through <clears throat> verses 8 and on, Boaz goes beyond just allowing her to glean in the field to pick up leftovers. He, at that point in time, tells her, listen, you can pick up more than just that. In fact, I'm telling my folks to, to leave stuff for you. I'm going to tell my, you actually, wherever you see my people go, you go there. You don't go and glean anyone else's fields. You stay in mine because I'm going to make sure you got enough food. So where you see the ladies go in my group, you go with them. And I'm beyond that, he said, I'm going to even make sure, I've told my service to make sure to leave you alone. In other words, if there's someone out there that says, get out of here, lady, you don't belong here. I've already told them to leave you alone. And he goes out of his way to do more than he had to. He started off being obedient, but when given the opportunity to go above and beyond, he eagerly embraced that. He did that. Now, you and I, we've got things that God's told us to do, but from time to time, God puts us in a situation. We get to go above and beyond. God uses this, and he, through Boaz and through Boaz's obedience, demonstrates his grace. Now, if we were to go to Matthew chapter 1, we would see... In the line of Christ, in the line of the Messiah, in the line of David, the king of Israel. David's great-grandfather is Boaz by Ruth. Know who Boaz's mother is? It's a lady by the name of Rahab. Now, if you know who Rahab is, she was a citizen of Jericho. She is the one who hid the spies when they went to, to scout out Jericho by the orders of Joshua. 
She's the one that hid them, kept them safe, let them escape. And they said, because of what you've done for us, because she said, I want to go with you guys. I want to be one of y'all. She hangs that red rope out her window. And so when the city collapses, she's preserved and they bring her into Israel. That's Boaz's mom. You think Boaz, you think God had Naomi and Ruth in mind, even as far back as Rahab? That maybe Boaz is open to the idea of a Moabitess because his mom is a Jerichoite? <laughs> I think there's a good chance that's going on. This speaks to Boaz's faith and obedience. Boaz says to Ruth, I know what you've done. I know how you've placed your faith in the God of Israel. He says there, I wish we had more time on this one, but he said that in verse 12, I said, I know you have, you have come to the God of Israel for refuge. And guess what Boaz is going to be? He's going to be the practical outworking of God's refuge for Ruth and Naomi. He says, Ruth, you have exhibited faith. You have left your gods for the God of Israel. You have left your family for this family here in Bethlehem. You have taken, Ruth, a leap of faith that has led you to here. And because of your faith, God is going to provide His grace. And God's going to provide His refuge. By the way, when we come to faith in Christ, we're doing the same thing. We place our Lives, both now and eternal, in the hands and the direction of God. We are, in Boaz's words, seeking refuge in the God of Israel. We have left one nation, one world for another. We have left one God for another. We have left one way of life for another. When we come to Christ, these are, this is what we've done. We've done what Ruth did. I'm wondering... As you look back at this last week, how has God made himself known to you? In what ways has he made his grace known to you? What invisible or visible ways, what small things, what word of God, what act of compassion have you either has seen God made known to you or made, made, known, God, made known God to somebody else? The story of redemption has begun.